This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. At a time in the gardening world where we're hearing the phrase ecologically functional or ecological landscape design with great regularity, I'm pleased to be joined today by Kelly Norris. Kelly is an avid gardener, a former nursery owner and plant breeder, and an award-winning author. Based in Des Moines, Iowa, he is recently retired from his role as Director of Horticulture and Education at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden, and his newest book, New Naturalism, Designing and Planting a Resilient, Ecologically Vibrant Home Garden, helps all of us to demystify what an ecologically functional and still incredibly beautiful and gratifying home garden can include. Welcome, Kelly. It is such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer. So I'm going to ask you to take us beyond that little resume sheet and describe for listeners if you had a current personal mission statement for your own gardening practice and growth right now in your life, what would that personal mission statement be, Kelly? That personal mission statement for me, is to plant the world a more beautiful, functional place, ecologically functional place, that is. And that is a a course that I have been on for a long time, really, Uh, a course of some self-discovery along the way, as well as um, a a sort of marrying of my various interests in horticulture as I have, have come to discover them in the course of my career today. I'm going to ask you to drill down into that a little bit. The word functional, right, is so boring and it's so (laughs) practical, but we hear it all the time. And so I'm not, I'm certainly not accusing you of being boring after reading New Naturalism. You are anything but. (laughs) Um, And and I think that's true of so many of our gardens. Like, you know, we get, we get these talking points from, you know, people who say we should do this or we should do this. What is that? You you describe an ecologically vibrant home. What does that look like? I want you to give me a picture of the colors and the sounds and the scents, Kelly, because that word functional actually holds all the magic and mystery of what we come to the garden for, I think. It, it does hold all the magic and the mystery. I'm so glad you said that because I often, when people ask about that mission statement, I often think the very same thing myself. I think, gosh, Functional is such a <laughs> functional word, it, it, you know. But you're so right. It, it, it. This idea that our gardens can be more than simply a static painting in a frame, mm-hmm. but rather this living, multi-dimensional, changing, self-perpetuating entity that is itself an intervention with land, is to me what that resilient, vibrant stuff means. I think what we've come to realize in such short order, perhaps exacerbated by life in a pandemic and all of these things is, is, you know, these gardens are not some sterile Petri dish apart from the world around them. They, they are, they're stitches in the greater ecological quilt of, mm. of, of the very motley landscapes that we live in, in cities and suburbs extending even out into the country, the, the little liminal edges between agrarian fields and, and what have you. These, our gardens in some ways are, are maybe 
nature's last stand as, as at least the nature that we, we knew it. And I, I don't tend to spend a lot of time either, Jennifer, looking at the rear view mirror. It, it, it's, it's forward motion. It, it's, it's this idea that we, we just have to keep planting. We just have to keep embracing the power of that intervention with land as the real life force proverbially and, and literally about gardening. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that them being stitches and interventions on behalf of land that has been um, degraded or ignored or neglected in, in the, all the various ways we know that much land has been. So before we go deeper into all that you just, uh, you offered out to us there, I, I want to go back as I always do and have you describe to listeners, your earliest influences, you know, who were the people and the places and the plants that grew you into a person for whom this would be your career path and this passion would be your main calling at the, you know, sort of peak of your your career and gardening life, perhaps. And, you know, where were you born and raised and, and who, who modeled these values for you, Kelly? I have been fortunate to live to date, a life among plants. And if there's one thing that gets me up in the morning, it's, it's that I want to live a life among plants. And I want that for others too. And, and I have been living that from a very young age. I grew up in a very rural part of the country in Southwest Iowa, a little town called Bedford on a farm, two farms, actually. My parents uh, bought the farm that I spent most of my childhood on when I was about 10 years old. And prior to that had uh, rented farms uh, and had had uh, done various things. And so the farm I really was born on, you, you could say, was just up the road from my maternal grandmother. And my maternal grandmother's farm was, and her garden were the places that I you know, spent my early elementary ages discovering plants. In fact, my first memory in her garden that I'm, that I have been able to recall is picking four o'clock seeds from the ground in a little mm. a plastic tub or container. I was a busy <laughs> child, I think. And so she would be out in the garden and would give me these little tasks. I also remember planting hills of squash. I called them mountains because of course, when you're four or five years old, that seems like a big pile right. of dirt to plant some <laughs> seeds in. So I, I would, I would, I remember hoeing them up with a big flathead hoe and, and poking the, those seeds into that soft, warm soil. And it just, those, those, those memories are, are, are visceral to me. I, I, I remember them vividly even now, all these years later. And yet, alongside of all of that, as I was growing up, about a half a mile up the road from my maternal grandmother's farm was a 40-acre prairie remnant that I would later learn was a significant rem remnant for the fact that it contained two federally threatened plant species, western prairie fringed orchid and mead's milkweed. And so, and this, this, this realization didn't come for me until later, but I, I, throughout my life from a relatively young age through high school and adolescent years and college, I was simultaneously fascinated by plants in two conditions. One, very much in a garden and a cultivated situation. And this other condition of plants in the wild, in their wild homes. And it wasn't until I got to college that I realized that these 
in fact, really weren't two conditions. <laughs> we live in one world with perhaps many nuances in it. But I saw really in, in the, the, that assessment, my future and this sort of celebration of all of the things we can know and learn about plants in their wild homes and how we might come to celebrate that and honor them and place more substantially in gardens. Yeah. I love that. Well, so I, I, the, the, the piece that's maybe missing from that otherwise complete assessment is that, you know, my, my life as a horticulturist began when I was about 15 years old. I talked to my parents into buying a mail order iris nursery. <laughs> and we... And that's usually the response that comes to, from that story or, or the question that some people ask at that point is, you know, I, 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 I guess I'll leave it to listeners to decide who was crazier, me or my parents, but uh, to, to let their 15 year old perhaps talk them into this. But we, we bought a, a business uh, called Rainbow Iris Farm and moved it from north of Austin, Texas to our farm in southwest Iowa in 2002. And operated that mail order nursery for 15 years. And so I have the lucky fortune of getting to say that I started my professional career in horticulture at the age of 15. And, and my parents and I ran that mail order business for 15 years. And so this, this life, I, I really mean it when I say that I've lived this life among plants is that I, I have from those very early years into my adolescence been so convinced that my life was to be horticultural. I, I I have always sort of felt like I have this clear sense of the horizon that I'm driving towards, but the route to get there is perhaps a little blurry. And, and I think that's just this, the, the wonderful mystery of this journey of life. But I have always known that my, my life would be horticultural. Okay. So first of all, before we get deeper into that, I, I want to hear something about that conversation and how it might've first gone. Um, <laughs> like, Hey, mom and dad. Right. Yeah. I found this nursery. And how did you even find a nursery, an, an Irish nursery that was for sale in Texas? Tell us a little bit on that backstory, Kelly. Well, it was July 30th, 2002. <laughs> and the date lives in my mind uh, with, with sort of crystalline clarity. I had gotten into irises in 1999. I was 12 years old and my maternal grandmother, again, had uh, it has a role in this. Um, she would take my brother and I on little road trips in the summer sometimes. And we ended up driving across Nebraska and South Dakota and we were coming back and we were staying in a little hotel and we saw a little notice posted in the hotel lobby that said irises for sale. And so she took me to this place, 1999, a little nursery near Wisner, Nebraska, called Spruce Gardens. And the man that ran that nursery was uh, named Cal Reuter, who actually was a regional vice president for the American Iris Society. And in this 12-year-old, curious 12-year-old that sat at his kitchen table, pouring over uh, the small type in his little price list, uh, he uh, must have seen uh, a little something. <laughs> and so I went home that day with a box of irises. And that began my collection, uh, which by 2002 had grown to about 300 or so varieties. And I was involved, you know, the, this, this was this was 20 some years ago. I mean, the internet was a different place, right? Yeah. There were things called list listservs <laughs> and Yahoo groups and all these things. And so, you know, I was subscribed to an iris listserv uh, and and I and this was probably not long after my parents even got internet actually at you know in rural America at our farm and so it was it was quite 
it was quite novel. I mean, it was this gate into a, a <laughs> world of connections and stories and plants oh, yeah. and people and all this really stuff. interesting so, people too, right? Yeah, really interesting yeah. people. Plant geeks are the most interesting mm-hmm. people. I mean, they're, they're they're and so I was just follow, I, I, every day I would read these messages and I I was just sort of you know, taken with rapt interest at the the dynamics of these plant collectors, these iris lovers, and so in fact the group was actually called uh, Iris Talk was the name of the group. And this notice on July 30th, 2002 showed up that this business called Rainbow Iris Farm, which I had heard of, although I had never ordered plants from them, was going up for sale. And the owner, who was a man named Cliff Snyder, posted this on Iris Talk and said, if anyone's interested in buying the nursery or, or interested in hearing more about the offer to give us a call. So I printed off that email and I folded it up and I put it in my pocket and I took it to the supper table. And, you know, I was, I, I had a little chutzpah as a kid. And so I just, I just said it. I just said, I think we should buy an iris farm. And my dad was actually the first to respond. And, and he actually really, in a very patient way said, well, you know, I think you should give them a call, which was not what I was expecting him to say. And he must've thought that surely a 15 year old or 14 or 15, I can't remember exactly at the time, you know, would have surely been dismissed. I mean, <laughs> this, this guy, this, this cliff would not have taken him seriously. I love it. I love it. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I made that phone call. <laughs> and the universe and said, the- yes, Kelly is on his way. <laughs> so, um, oh, that is so great. So you're 15, you, you, you buy this with your family, you as a, as a family run this for 15 years. Ostensibly you go off to college and you get advanced training all the while running this nursery. And just for the, um, iris enthusiasts out there of which I know there are many, uh, is it still being operated by anybody? And was it primarily bearded iris? Give us just a a very brief summary of that. So we get further into the story. It was primarily bearded irises. It became a seven and a half acre operation on our farm that we did run for 15 years. We closed shop a few years ago now. Uh, we, I'm probably in 2017 or mm-hmm. so to just focus on the next chapter, uh, family and, and other opportunities. It was, it was a good run. We still grow irises. I still breed irises uh, and hybridize bearded irises and have many, many fertile paths to follow uh, in that work. But um, it, was, uh, it, it was a beautiful inaugural chapter mm-hmm. in so many yeah, ways yeah, yeah. to my career. And so at the same time, you are uh, clearly, you know, you are learning on the job, uh, all the things one needs to learn in order to run a mail order nursery and grow this many irises and hybridize. Do you go off to, to formal training as well to give us what gets you from that adventure into your, uh, your work as the director of horticulture, uh, at the greater Des Moines botanical garden? So I, I did a bachelor's and master's at Iowa State University in horticulture. And I, I did, as you say, uh, begin that educational adventure all the while running the nursery. And I finished my master's in 2011 in uh, plant ecophysiology, sort of that nod to horticulture and ecology and learning about plants in place, all the while picking up as many courses in plant breeding and plant genetics, because of course those things were just interesting and fascinating to me. And then I ended my master's program thinking I was going to go on for a PhD. My 
my book on irises came out that same mm-hmm. year. I, I, if people haven't figured out, there's a sort of crazy element to about every step along the way. So of course, I Timber Press approached me about writing a guide to bearded irises while I was in my master's program, and and of course I said yes because why why would why would you not? But then but then you know why would you do a master's and write a book at the same time? And and I just I did that. I just absolutely did. And my major professor sort of looked at me and said, you know, if it's if you can juggle both, do it. <laughs> and I, I said I'm going to do it. So I ended I ended my master. I, I had finished this book manuscript. I finished this thesis and I was sort of like, okay, what next? And it really in my heart of hearts, I knew I wasn't going to go on to get a PhD, even though that's what I was saying. Um, but I didn't really know exactly what came next. I found myself at a strange place in life, somebody who had always had a plan. And it was about this time that I came across that Eisenhower quote, that plans are worthless, but planning is everything. And so I had a period of time at the end of my master's, about 15 months, where this idea of becoming the director of horticulture for this relatively new upstart botanical garden, a sort of reinvention of a former facility in Des Moines came up. And I resisted it for several months. It just, it was like the universe just wouldn't take no for an answer. And I finally, through a series of conversations and just, I, I finally just said, oh, what the heck? And I, I, I threw my hat in the ring. And as that journey began to what ultimately led to me being hired for that role, I began to realize that this was a dream job for a dream I didn't know I had until it quite manifested itself. And again, that horizon line that we all look towards out there without always knowing exactly where the road is gonna lead to you know, to that point, uh, revealed this little turn, and and it was the beginning of eight years uh, of a of a marvelous, uh, marvelous journey. This is cultivating place. Kelly Norris is a plantsman and gardener who believes in the power of ecologically vibrant gardens. In his book, New Naturalism, Chapter 1 delves with scientific detail into the biology and ecology of plants in the context of nature's operating systems, like that of the prairie, including how these systems work with soil and how the plants within them interact with one another. And all of this helps to inform our gardening decisions as to which plants of our region might go where and with whom in our gardens. We'll be right back after a break for more on the meaning of Ecologically Vibrant with Kelly. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. In New Naturalism, I especially enjoyed Kelly's appreciation for and defining of the idea of ruderal, ruderal plants, those who thrive in disturbed areas like roadside verges or urban cracks and remnant land or construction cuts. Kelly returns multiple times throughout the book to how to make good garden advantage of plants who exhibit such strength of character, like grasses and wildflowers, and to learn from their habit of repetition, to learn from their diversity of good looks, and 
to notice and appreciate their many wildlife habitat benefits. As we here in the Northern Hemisphere, having just crossed that high mark of the summer solstice, enter into the hottest and in the West, the driest part of the year, I very much like the idea of each of us really seeing, really knowing, really appreciating and learning from all of the rugged, scrappy, weedy, vibrant, and resilient, ruddural life all around us. We're back now to our conversation with Kelly Norris, Iowa-based plantsman who takes many of his garden design cues from the nature of the plants of his regional prairies. In his new book, New Naturalism. Kelly provides solid recipe lists for plant combinations to create a healthy matrix in a pleasing architectural arrangement with focal vignettes, no matter where you garden. His visual and written examples from Denver to Pennsylvania, Oregon to Ireland get us started. Our job, then, is to learn more about the native plants of our own areas to put these combination concepts to best use. As we come back, Kelly shares more about new naturalism in action. The dream was this culmination of all of these interests. It was, as I alluded to earlier, this reality that these sundry threads that were coming together to form this weft of my career that married together highly cultivated plants Mm. and cultivated settings and yet a fascination with plants in the wild and and going out and collecting and exploring for plants and studying them in the wild and all of this stuff comes together in a botanical garden in in a really modern progressive way and this was a a, a earnest beautiful effort that had come together by uh, a group of really important philanthropists in Des Moines and to really sort of say, let's, let's take this and create a world-class garden and, and, and really celebrate this opportunity to hit the reset button for an institution that, had, uh, a facility rather, that had kind of lost its way. I think my resistance to that must have been that, you know, I, I had these threads on the cutting room table and, and, I, and, and they by themselves didn't seem to, to form a weft, but, but, you know, there's, there's one thing about seeking and finding things in life. And then there's another thing about revealing and discovering them. And, and, and I was just in this place of needing to sort of sift those, Mm -hmm. to sift that out, I guess. And I, I didn't immediately, you know, that when I literally, that Eisenhower quote has stuck with me for the rest of my life. And I'm a very planful person. I'm a very strategic person in the way I, I just navigate everything and probably even down to buying groceries sometimes uh, to the bane of the people of my life. (laughs) I just, I have this sort of very kind of visionary strategic way about approaching just things and work and life and such. And, and so, you know, it seemed like at this point that all of a sudden there was a little vacuum to, to be filled. And and I I have learned to be more patient as I get older, because uh, if anything, that's what gardening teaches us is that, that this glimpse that we endure season after season for, the handful of decades that we are alive on this planet is just but a, a real moment in, in the great span of time. And, and it, it does teach one patient. Yeah. It, it is one of the greatest gifts of the garden. Um, and 
or taskmasters of the garden is that necessity for patience. And I, I ask those questions about the resistance in the dream because I think that for so many people that are um, you know, are trying to pay attention to their curiosity and or what might seem obstacles in their garden life, whether professional or personal, there might be insights there for them to to glean um, and and be useful. So I appreciate that. And so you go on to the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden, and it's eight years of, again, bringing all of these different threads together, integrating them in new ways, and learning. And you ultimately retire from that around the same time that you are uh, you are finishing up new naturalism. Maybe t- talk about the 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 genesis of that project in the nexus of your life at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden, Kelly, because they, they were happening concurrently. They they were, and and I I have to admit that again, the turn of the path that we take in life doesn't always reveal itself until you're ready to turn the wheel and realize it's upon you. And so, you know, my life at the Botanical Garden was this sort of living of what I call the J.C. Ralston dream. I, I use that phrase in the interview. The last interview I had when I was hired is that I was I felt like I was being called to create this collection and this garden and all, all of the experiences romantically and sensory and otherwise that could come from that effort. And you know, in the course of eight years, we we built this image of a new botanical garden progressively and, and with a high-minded approach to curation. And, and it was incredibly satisfying and yet extremely difficult sometimes to try and imagine that in a community where there had never been something like that before and, and learning what people responded to and what they didn't and, and bringing a level of horticulture to a region that is sometimes thought of as a bit of a horticultural desert, which I don't think is mm. is fair exactly. I, I, I think it's interesting that in the Midwestern, mid-continent of the, of the United States that we, we can claim to feed the world and produce agriculturally all of the things uh-huh. that we do, but there is something of a idea that it can't be a place where great gardens were from. And I just, I, I never accepted that. I, I always thought that this was our chance to really sort of celebrate the prairie and the mid-continent for, for what it was. And so, you know, throughout all of that and the genesis of the master plan and, and the keeping of those gardens over so many years after their conception, you know, was this passion for wanting to do so in a thoughtful, ecologically conscious way, something again, that had been a thread with me throughout so much of my life. And so we began to really focus a lot of our educational programming around this. We found that people were quite curious about these things and really wanting to to find ways to celebrate sense of place and local planting palettes and, and, and all this stuff. And so this idea about horti- this interface between horticulture and ecology was something that became part of my just daily rep. I mean, that became the, the real craft and the practice. Uh, and, and so it became clear to me in all of this that despite all of the trends and the, 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 the movement of these ideas into the horticultural conversation, something that's been happening, of course, for decades if throughout Europe and, and the U.S. And, and, and Asia and, otherwhere, and otherwise, there was still a missing element for how to translate the experience of a public park or a public garden in a 
wilder naturalistic setting or context to the home garden. And that's really where new naturalism came from or came from. That's, that's, that's the place that yeah. it was born. I find myself sort of tensing around um, your acknowledgement that there is this bizarre American mythology that, you know, great gardens occur in, you know, San Francisco and New York or Philadelphia and Portland. And it's just, it's never been true. Uh, and, uh, but the, the, outlying areas just get such short shrift. And not only is that to the detriment of good garden design and good garden inspiration, it is absolutely to the detriment of good ecological garden design, because you are eliminating the information and the experiential knowledge of this enormous section of our country and its climate and its plant diversity for great gardening. So uh, I, for one, am super excited about uh, having your voice coming out of Iowa in such a resonant way. You are bringing all of this knowledge that has come before you uh, from the remnant prairie as a little boy to um, the farm of your region as a little boy, through all the experience you have shared with us, define new naturalism for listeners. New naturalism is, to me, the broadest, most generous moniker with the widest latitude assumed to describe this interface in gardens between the art and science of growing plants, the, the stuff of horticulture, with this ecological undercurrent that is has many points from the, the romantic modernistic creations of somebody like Pete Aldolf to the ecological awareness and consciousness that people like Doug Tallamy have offered the, the conversation to this sense of needing to look back a little bit to go forward, to celebrate indigenous knowledge and to celebrate really this experience of plants in place from all directions. I think new naturalism is, in some ways, it's, it's, it's simply a title that is a, trying to address uh, from one author's viewpoint, all of the many things that now inform the way we make gardens. And in my life, I have always believed that whatever route we, would take any one of us to make a garden in that image begins with an understanding of plants. And that's why chapter one is, is titled thusly is because I think so often it's easy to look at a, a big name designer's garden and go, Oh, I, I want that. I like, I love, I love the plants. I love the feeling. I love the light or it's, or it's easy to listen to, you know, scientists like, Doug Tallamy or to climate scientists and, and hear about, you know, the things we need to be planting to support biodiversity, to sequester carbon, to mitigate runoff and do all of these conscious things that we feel as good stewards and good citizens of the planet that we should do. And yet then we go home and we're like, oh, what do I do next? <laughs> and so it's like, where do we start? We start with plants. This is Cultivating Place. 
Kelly Norris is an Iowa-based plansman, designer, and educator whose goal is to help each of us achieve a garden of beauty, of lively interaction with the wild, and not as a profession of mastery, but the ongoing pursuit of it. I love this quote by Kelly in the introduction to New Naturalism. Quote, No gardener sets out to do wrong by the world by any act of gardening, but what if we were more conscious about doing right by it? End quote. In a gardening moment where there's a lot of potential anxiety around the urgency of the biggest concepts, like climate change and pollinator decline, Kelly provides just enough of a tweak in perspective on how we approach our gardening impulse to grant us easier access into this conversation about the role of gardeners through our already established gardening passions and habits. We'll be right back with Kelly after a break. Stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, something struck me about the native landscape, that little bit of intact vestige, sometimes called relict, prairie that Kelly remembers vividly from his childhood. And still to this day, that prairie and its beauty and role in Kelly's world and life continues to seed his imagination and his motivation which is, I think, a really instructive ripple-out relationship for us to notice, for ourselves, for others, for any young people in our lives. When you think back, was there a native plant ecosystem that you knew, that you loved, that you felt related to? For me, it was and remains the mixed ponderosa pine forest at elevation where I grew up in Colorado. Now, in adulthood, I smell the scent of it. I feel the dry warmth of it in summer and the very, very specific way the wind and the light move through the coniferous canopy and my whole body registers with the thought of home. If you've listened to Cultivating Place for any length of time, you know that for me, the ponderosa pine forests of my childhood were where I first encountered the divine, God, if you will, resting there in the hushed pine straw beneath those trees. The rolling oak savannas of Northern California, where I've made my home for close to 15 years now, is certainly a beloved home away from home. And you? Is there an ecological home base for you? Is there one that you have introduced your young people to and hoped for them to imprint and bond with? I would love to hear your stories. If you follow me on Instagram, I will offer out this question this week in relation to this conversation with Kelly, and I'll look forward to your ecological family niche associations. The more we know them, the more we see them and love them. And then perhaps the more we offer ourselves and our gardening impulses to be holy and joyfully in the service of them. If you are not on Instagram, feel free, as always, to send me an email with your story. 
cultivatingplace at gmail.com. And over on Instagram, you can find me at cultivating underscore place. Happy, happy summer or winter solstice season, garden friends near and far. We are in this garden-hearted life together with our planet, our plants, our places, and one another. Never forget it. We're back now to our conversation with Iowa-based plantsman gardener and educator Kelly Norris. His most recent book, New Naturalism, is a companion for us in cultivating a caring consciousness. It is divided into two major parts, the nature of planting and planting palettes. As we come back, Kelly orients us to the book's scope. What I was trying to do was just sort of convene this conversation around this topic to really just bring more gardeners into the conversation, not to feel like they needed to be schooled or not to feel like I was wagging the finger at people, because frankly, Jennifer, there's just too much finger wagging that goes on in this. And, you know, people who are passionate about their causes, I get it. And I'm a passionate person as well, too. But there's no movement in the history of civilization that is succeeded by looking at an entire group of people and wag to at which you wag their you know your finger at them and said you're wrong everything you're doing is wrong now change and i just that's not how we're wired i would rather seduce people into doing the right thing than to scold them for planting a peony when i wish they would have planted a penstemon i i i that's not the point and so by understanding plants by having a little bit of a view onto plants as living entities, the producers of the planet, we can move the conversation then from just simply an aesthetic thing, because new naturalism is not about style. Style is everything else. This is a strategy. This is an approach to how to think about gardening in maybe a different way, how to, to, to start to see it as this intervention with place. And that's why the second chapter leads us from this conversation about understanding plants to this awareness that once we know something about plants or, or acknowledge what we love about plants or all these other things, we have to remember that right. they're alive <laughs> right, in right. place. Like the, 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 and this is one of the things I think that is actually so often missing from the stylistic whitewashing or greenwashing, if you will, that happens around these conversations where, you know, we think by just assorting plants into a visual result, we've created something that's naturalistic. I actually have started to, I, I don't like that word. <laughs> I, I cringe actually when I even use it now myself because it's like, right. what, what does that mean actually? <laughs> and, 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 and really what is it, what is it supposed to mean? I mean, like, there's one thing about what, what, I, what you think I am saying when I say that, but what do I even mean when I'm saying it? And I don't even know that any of us know anymore, which is why I think we need to sort of, reconcile this with place, with the dynamic awareness that the cities that so many of us live in and grow in bear little resemblance to their immediate natural history. That in fact, they are cities that are part of a, this orb of the planet that's subject to this little thing we call climate change. That in fact, whatever journey we're on, whatever horizon line we're traveling to is actually moving away from us as we get closer to it because the planet is changing. Um, and in fact, it's, it's always changing and place is always changing. And I think that's 
why I offered that little chapter. It, it actually wasn't in the initial outline, but it became very clear as I was as I began writing that I couldn't try to you know, convey these insights about plants without also putting it into context. And so from that context, we go to techniques. We go to like, how, what's the recipe? <laughs> like, all right, now I, I have some ingredients. I, I'm looking at this blank and I'm looking at the kitchen counter. It's like, what, what am I making now? Like, what am I know I'm always making food analogies. I don't know why, but I'm a foodie. I love food, but I was like, I've got the ingredients. I've got the clean slate counter here. What am I making? What am I doing with this stuff? And that's where I try to, you know, hybridize a little bit between good gardening insights and, and assessments and a little ecological science to kind of try to help people put gardens together in a different way uh, in places. That's not just about, oh, I like that combination of color, texture, form. That's all important. Don't get me wrong. But how do we relate plants to each other in a way that makes sense yeah. in place? Yeah. And, you know, some of them, uh, I think, are, well, like what you just described really goes back to um, one of the things you said right in your your introduction um, and your mission statement, I think, which was trying to get beyond this idea that our gardens are these like static, pretty pictures, but that they are this, you know, dynamic, ever-changing um, relationship and process. And in, in this section, I think it really unpacks some of the ways you can encourage this ecological um, function, for lack of a better word right now, and vibrancy is a much better word, and do it in ways that are still flexible to you in your place with the plants that you might love and embrace the collector's mindset and uh, horticultural layers inspired by nature. These were very useful headings for me, Kelly. Well, I'm, I appreciate hearing that because I, I want the book to be useful. I, I love that people are enamored with the photography and of course there's a sort of you know that's that's why we read books right especially gardening and shelter any any kind of shelter book is a multi-sensory experience it's reading and looking it's it's like my choir director in college used to say an audience only half listens right that we're we're preoccupied by what we see and so i i, I love that that there's people that i've heard so many kind things from people about the photography and the visual layout of the book but you know that i really you know as an author you you sort of labor over how to architect the information in a way that is practical. Because as, as we talked in advance of this, there, there are so many books. There are so many gardening books. There are so many even books about designers in this field, in, this, in, this, in these right. styles and approaches. And yet, I still think a lot of people look wide-eyed with earnest interest at these creations and go, right. but how do I right. do it? Like, how do I do this at home? And, and I don't pretend for a minute that this book answers all of those questions. I, I, there's, it, there's only 208 pages <laughs> after all. But there's, and there is more to say about that perhaps too, because this book really focuses on the, maybe the commencement, right? The designing and the planting. There's, there's a whole nother conversation to be had about how do you live with a garden that is a little wild hearted <laughs> in comparison to maybe the gardens you maybe lived with before. I mean, I, I to go back to your cooking analogy um, and, and metaphor, it, it's 
like looking at a recipe and then saying, okay, how can I adapt that with what I actually have on hand here today? And that right, I found right. also very useful. And I love the references to Julia Child. So that made me happy. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I tell you what, I'll tell you a funny story about Julia Child. I kept a copy actually until about two weeks ago on, uh, I, I kept a copy of Mastering the Art of French Cooking on my desk through the entire time I wrote this book, I was, and I have cooked from that book, yes, but I have probably read more of those recipes and, and really relished the candor and, 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 and the kind of, the way that she and her co-authors could summarize something that would seem so complicated at first blush into something that you could almost turn into a mnemonic or a device that you just, you could, you could reference and go back to again and again. And, and I, from the very beginning of that book, you know, they, they made very clear, as I subtly tried to do in my introduction, that this was not a book about celebrating great chefs. It was a book about celebrating the acts right. of great cooking. Yeah, I love that. And, yeah. and this, so I'm not, I didn't try to name check all the big names in planting design in the world. It, to, to do so would set this on a loftier pedestal than it already is. And the, this idea was to simply have a conversation in the garden about plants as they are and, and as they can relate to place in the most thoughtful way. I have to pass along something that's sort of funny. I recently found a review uh, or was brought to my attention review of the book and somebody looked at the palette section and said well you know there's some really beautiful photos and there's some great inspiration in these palettes but you know the lists of plants aren't really relatable to all places <laughs> and i i thought wow well maybe 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 we maybe i missed uh, making something clear in chapter two <laughs> or in the intro to the palettes it's like that's actually the point they're not supposed to relate to all places because there are very there are, are so few plants that to relate all places in such a cosmopolitan way to all places like that's that's the mold we have to break that's the exactly that's what makes this so hard in some ways to almost do and and it's why i quoted um Hansen and Stahl from uh, in the in the preface of section two is I think the first sentence of that section is something to the effect of you know make prescribing plants as recipes is always a sort of dangerous mm -hmm. task because you're uh, you're immediately then putting the emphasis on my ability to choose plants as they go together instead of do these plants actually belong in that place and so so yes there are some caveats and nuances to how the palettes come together but it is my hope that people lean in and dig into those lists and maybe more and more, more than that, just start to think about this layered typology and how to sort of account for the complexity of bringing plants together in a communal fashion. Well, and what I want to point out is that a review like that gives you a, a very clear indication that this person didn't read the book, and um, and that's that, that's <laughs> fine. And and there are going to be those people who don't. But right. I would argue vehemently that gardeners are smarter than we think they are, and we can expect them. Oh, I agree. Or, or not than we think they are, but then most people treat them as, and. 
we are our thoughtful and intelligent people who will make the best use of this. And so to, you know, level up how we think and talk about gardening is, of course, one of my greatest, uh, my my sole goal in many ways. Um, and you, you offer intelligent information here that uh, people will put to good use. So can you share for people, and, and this is sort of along that line of how we as gardeners can expand and deepen our own thinking and behavior in this act that we love so much. In this process of writing the book, were, were there surprises or lessons or maturing of thinking for you in this work? Gosh, that's a great question. You know, and you know this as a, as a writer yourself, of course, that the proposal that you write and the journey you, uh, with the, that you set out on with the outline that you do is, at least in my experience, often not always a great indicator of where you'll right. end. <laughs> it's, I would love, one of my favorite quotes about writing is from Maya Angelou, who was once asked how she conceives of her stories. And she said, I just create characters and, and let them live their story. And in so many ways, as a plantsman, as somebody who has an artist's heart and a scientist's head, I want people to begin to see plants not just as pretty things, not just as furnishings for some outdoor lifestyle we want to live, but as living entities interacting with this complex world that we live in. I mean, in so many ways, if any, if I learned anything in the book or if it advanced my thinking, it's that this is only the beginning. This, this idea of creating and making a planting, which I do every day as a person in a private studio practice for clients, you know, big and small, is, is just the beginning. It's just the first step. The, the life of the garden comes next. The the adaptation of plants to place follows this act of commencement. This journey that we live as gardeners isn't simply something that we can reduce to a two-dimensional planting plan with circles and dots that relate to each other. And it's one of the reasons why I actually focus quite, that's why I focus very little on rendered planting plans in a lot of my work. I, I focus more on spreadsheets and in my own kind of complex scientific sort of approach i mean the way i think about how plants relate to each other isn't just like oh that color is a nice complement to the one next to it it's how are those two plants going to coexist for a period of time how will one change in response to its environment will will it recede will it self perpetuate will it outlive the one next to it because it's just a longer lived plant i i there's so much more to plants than the 140 characters or 280 characters we can cram onto a plant tag. You know, I, I would love to see plant tags that become more intelligent than simply full sun, well-drained soil, yellow flowers in midsummer, because there's so much more to plants than that. And I really believe, if you want to take this back to the title, naturalism in philosophy is a sister, a brother, if you will, to empiricism. You know, it's it's a relate it's it's a relative of science. You know, empiricism is like I have a hypothesis and I'm going to test it and I'm going to see if the result 
bears me out. As a gardener, I make hypotheses all the time. (laughs) I make, I set out and I call them, and I don't call them hypotheses in the book. I call them durable assumptions. You know, I want to get more right than I get wrong, but I want to assume that I'm going to learn and grow with the garden in the process. And so naturalism is the observational sibling to all of that. It's the things that we see as gardeners, that we observe when we're on our hands and knees, sweating, sometimes crying, <laughs> or bleeding, or swearing, I don't know. We're, it's the things we pick up that start to add up to something that I hope people read in the book and go, you know, I've always noticed that and wondered what that meant, or why that plant grew like that, or what those runners do, <laughs> or, or just those little leads that we start to acquire by virtue of our observational life in the garden. I think that's such great stuff. And, um, you know, when you were talking about uh, there's so much more beyond that, you know, planting plan or even even the spreadsheet. And it reminded me of right. that when we when we design a planting, no matter how big or if it's the whole garden plan, you know, that is sort of like a marriage certificate, Kelly. And there is no like, and they lived happily ever <laughs> after. Like what happens after that, that's the relationship. That's the good stuff. And it's how we coexist together. And And plants are not things or furniture. They are our greatest companions on this planet. And uh, we have so much more to learn from them. And you have offered out a, a great addition. And I just really appreciate your time. And thank you for being a guest on on the program today. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Jennifer, thank you for convening these conversations and sharing them with so many people. It's been my great honor to be here today. Kelly Norris is an avid gardener, a former nursery owner, and a plant breeder. He is also an award-winning author. Based in Des Moines, Iowa, he is recently retired from his role as Director of Horticulture and Education at the Greater Des Moines Botanical Garden. His newest book, New Naturalism, Designing and Planting a Resilient, Ecologically Vibrant Home Garden, helps all of us to demystify what an ecologically functional and still incredibly beautiful and gratifying home garden can include. Join us again next week when, in anticipation of welcoming July, cultivating places in conversation with Ali Meters Knight of the Machupta Maidu in Northern California, speaking to us about her traditional ecological plant life journey and knowledge. Cultivating places produced from a physical base on the traditional lands of the Machupta Maidu people. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The podcast and its outreach is listener-supported over at cultivatingplace.com. For more about Kelly and his work around new naturalism, including many gorgeous images of the gardens he uses to illustrate his concepts of matrix, structure, and vignettes, head over to this week's show notes, which you'll find under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the podcast version of Cultivating Place for the extended interviews and information each week. 
and just so you never miss an episode to grow by. Cultivating Places executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our audio producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.